Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From choosing the right college, developing a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and more. Each episode will help guide your family through the various steps of the process. Now, here is your host. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, it's a new year, and I seem to have forgotten the name of the show. Okay, uh, welcome to the show. Uh, happy New Year for everyone who's here with us today. Um, as you can see, if you're watching this video on one of our social media channels, uh, I'm joined today by two guests uh, this morning. I've got uh, to my left, as I'm looking at the screen, we have uh, Christine Sawicki. Hey, Christine, how you doing? Hi, Ian. And we have Becky Likeling down beneath me, but not beneath me, below me in terms <laughs> of like where we are on the screen. Hi, Becky. Hey, happy to be here, Ian. I'm glad to have you. So we, um, a couple of weeks on the show, we did our New Year's resolutions and talked a little bit about what students and families can be thinking about as they're heading into the new year. And what I wanted to do for today and invited you both on to discuss with me is to talk a little bit about our prior year's reflections. Um, what did we observe when we were working with all of the students who we worked with uh, over the course of the last year? And especially what made students more and less successful with respect to the process? Now, a little bit of just framing. Um, I really like to measure whether the college application process was successful or not before I start to get decisions back from colleges. Because I think that you can assess how you feel about that process um, in a way that helps you to measure whether the outcome um, was worthwhile or not. Um, and so that's why we're talking about it here in January instead of in April when all the decisions come back and we can say, oh, this kid got in there, they were successful, right? They're, we want to talk more about process. So um, we work with hundreds of students every year. We work directly with small handfuls of students with our own uh, caseloads. Um, and so I wanted to talk in our first segment here about just what we saw from among seniors who are applying to college this year, especially given the pandemic and the effects of the pandemic. And then in our second segment, talk about some of the traits that we observed that were sort of markers for success from parents, from students, and think about how rising juniors can incorporate that into their process for next year. Does that all make sense? Is that, is that okay with you too? Yeah, that sounds great. And I love the, the framework um, that you've set, particularly the word process and evaluating the process. Um, I think the word outcome is often attached and associated with the application calendar, um, but it really is a process. And um, when I start reflecting on the families that I've talked with and the students that I've supported, um, it very much feels like a process. So I appreciate that word um, and your reflection of um, defining success with that process before the decisions come. So thank you for that. Okay, good. Becky, are you cool with that too? Are you all right with the ground rules? I think that sounds great. Um, and it's interesting to I also love the word process and I immediately thought of a plan, which I think is both important, but also part of the process is having a plan that is flexible and can change and evolve. And so I, to me, it circles back to process. I love that. And I appreciate your setting those ground rules. Awesome. That's great. Um, what do we, what do we notice about students this year? This is a really funky year, right? Like everybody knows about the pandemic um, for the students who are seniors this year, their junior year. Um, or sophomore year. Their sophomore year was ended early. Most of their junior year was taught remotely and online. They maybe got back to school in the mid-spring of their junior year and then back to school potentially fully in person in the fall of this senior year. How did that affect the way that students were interacting with the college application process? Were there any things that you noted that were particularly different about uh, student engagement with essay writing or with planning or, or anything at all? It's a fairly open question. Christine, why don't you start? Yeah, I think there was some, um, you know, 
uh, very new procedural elements to this year. There was a lot of conversation around test optional. Um, how does my extracurricular profile look and how will it be evaluated given disruption? Um, the common application had a specific COVID-19 question and its impact on you. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. That needed to be written. So um, there were definitely new conversations, I guess not new compared to last year, but um, certainly relevant to this year's class. Um, uh, kind of qualitatively working with students this year, um, I guess if I were to put two adjectives that um, seemed a little bit more prominent in this year's class, one was independence. I felt like a lot of my students wanted to um, do things more their way. And, um, I was more in a support role with a lot of them. Mm. And two, I noticed a lot more, um, kind of last minute college add-ons. I think there was just a little bit more anxiousness, um, that stemmed from the uncertainty, um, that, um, perhaps the last two years has set a foundation for. I want to come back to that independence piece because I think that's really interesting. I want to unpack that a little bit more. Um, but, I, but first, I want to talk about the anxiousness because this is a process that obviously creates anxiety for families. It always has. It will continue to do so. A pandemic can exacerbate that. Did you think that things were more uh, strongly felt in terms of that sense of anxiety and uncertainty this year than in prior more, quote, normal years? Or um, was it about the same as, as you typically would have seen? I say I, I think I, I, it felt more prompt, more present uh, to me this year okay. in the families that I worked with. Um, there was seemingly just kind of less trust in the overall list and the process as a whole. And so there was um, just a greater instinct. I had a lot more conversations about um, a slightly bigger list and sometimes mm. even more than slightly bigger, <laughs> um, a bigger list and um, quite a few calls with last minute additions of colleges. We're just trying to squeak these, this last one in. I might as well toss this in just to have another option. Um, so yeah. Becky, did you see that, that same kind of more pronounced difference in terms of people's stress levels this year, or was it pretty consistent with prior years for you? Yeah, no, I agree. And I, I think in addition to what Christine said, I, I think there were a higher number of students that I perceived beginning with, um, for lack of a better term, a, a deficit mindset. I'm missing something because junior year was quite missing this. I don't have this. Yeah. I, I, and there's always students who feel like, oh, they're friends in NHS and they weren't. They're missing that. But so many more students had a different experience than older siblings or friends who in previous grades, that was where we started their conversation. And so it took a while to reframe, no, 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 you are a full human. You have lived a, a, a rich life. Let's figure out what there is to share there. Um, and I also think it's no surprise to anyone that mental health challenges through COVID have been uh, significantly impacting families in ways we have never imagined before. And so conversations about college we're also rooted in a place of very different starting points for a lot of folks. Um, yeah. So that changes how we counsel and changes what students are thinking about for next steps and changes how this fits into their life. And that was all pretty different as well. Yeah. The, the application just had more things, I think, this year because of, as you mentioned, Christine, the, the COVID essay and um, differences in terms of test optional, which I think created more questions and more concern. But I, I want to come back to that sense of independence and also the sense of isolation that you touched on, Becky, right? Which is in past years, you're at school every single day. You see what your peers are up to. And for 18 months, students were essentially on their own. I mean, they would have had friends that they were connecting with, but a lot of the schoolwork they were doing, even showing up for class was done on their own independently, which I think puts up those walls, there's not as much of a sense of trust of, well, I haven't been able to do these things. Are other people doing these things? Because they don't discuss it with their friends at school. They don't get to see what other people are up to. There's not an opportunity to engage with what is normal in this context. And so I, I had a lot of conversations with students who saying, I know that you weren't able to do your, your fall sport. Nobody was, right? But I, but I think students don't necessarily understand that because they don't see it in the same kind of way that they would have previously uh, on a high school campus. But Christine, you said that that sort of was realized in the way that students engaged more independently. 
more of a go at their own way kind of um, approach to the process. Do you have any examples of that or, or can you help our listeners better understand kind of what you mean by it? Yeah. Um, I think I'm um, quite a bit more than um, a typical year. Uh, students were wanting to share their essay work with me in a more careful on their own pace way, as opposed to being open to, um, I guess, a more strict schedule um, of churning through the number of essays that needed to be done. Um, you know, I helped my students set up a schedule and they, they um, flexed with that schedule with, with confidence uh, that they had a system to navigate that was, mm-hmm. was different. And um, uh, a lot of students um, had increased confidence of, oh, I don't need you to look at this essay or provide feedback or brainstorm with me on this. I think I've got this one. It's just similar to this one. And there was just increased confidence um, in, I know how to do this. <laughs> I want to I impress on that, though. I wonder whether you think that that was an increased sense of confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and Becky, I don't know if you've had this experience as well, but it felt to me a little bit this year that students were more reluctant to share openly what their work was. And sometimes for me, that was my students presenting as being confident, like I've got this, but I think was, I could feel more that it was, I don't really want to share this with you. I'm not necessarily, I'm not sure it's right. I'm not proud of it yet. It's not where I want it to be. And so there was less of a willingness, I think, to be vulnerable in terms of sharing a really unpolished first draft. And that led to procrastination. I like the positive lens of building, of increased independence. I also think this is probably super individual and different students were responding to being remote for a year. I think the, the other way of some students I worked with, I think had not had the, research paper for English that would have, you know, forced them to do that analytical writing and the regular check-ins with reflective pieces for their, and so it felt like for some, some students were more independent. I got this. I've been learning independently for a year and some students felt like, sorry, I haven't, I haven't done that sort of work before. It wasn't what we were doing and were even less confident in the sort of, um, exchange of ideas and writing that is common for this stage in the process. So I think it, it was different. And I think there was, the difference was, was pretty broad and varied in how it landed for different kids based on their personality and their school setting. Was it, were there any kind of trends that, that we saw, or is it just kind of like, I might've had a handful more that were more independent this year, but maybe next year that, that flips back in a different direction. Is there anything that you could definitively say about, you know, this, this kind of second year of the pandemic in, in terms of the effects on, on students? I'm putting you on the spot. One thing that I always appreciate when working with a, a writer is I, th- I think that students who are also readers usually do have an easier time adjusting to the sort of writing we're doing. And so whether you were remote or not, I think the students who throughout the pandemic were also still just reading, that, I, that, that just felt like a huge leap for kids to, to come back to the writing process. Yeah, I think that's right. If you were uh, not reading in between your classes, um, if you, you know, went to more of those, you know, video games or Netflix or whatever as a decompress, as opposed to reading, some people decompress by reading. I I think that made the writing process much more challenging when it, when it queued up here in the fall. I also felt like for me, a lot of students got started a lot later than I would have liked, or I think they would have historically, there was a lot more procrastination than you would typically see with teenagers um, this year than I have historically. And we saw that in a, in a few different contexts. Christine, some of that you, is, oh, yeah, go ahead. No, please, please. Colleges were closed for a year. And so students weren't visiting their state university. They weren't engaged. Reps weren't coming to their high school. And so I think conversations about college, if trying to think back to how we were all how life felt in summer of 2020 and fall of 2021, like families weren't talking about your college tour in the same way. And so that was delayed for understandable reasons. And things were very compressed in that respect. The whole search process was really, really compressed. Uh, That's for sure. And like Christine said, extended to the very last minute. 
with mm-hmm. list building. That's right. Christine, anything that you observed that you could say definitively was, was a trend through this year? Or is it kind of like, well, it might have been this kid or that kid, but you know, who knows? Yeah, a little bit more the the latter. I mean, I think, um, you know, with, you know, having done this work for, you know, two decades, there tends to be, you know, kind of waves of, you know, this class feels this or has this more prominent characteristic. And um, I think it's really hard to figure out the causality of how much was pandemic, how much of it, you know, happens to be uh, overall. Um, And this is such an individualized process, how every student impacts and everything that's going around them. And those are a multitude of factors. Um, uh, Yeah. So um, I guess if anything, I would point to, it is those administrative things that I pointed out at the beginning. There's this extra layer of conversation that goes around the process that I can say with confidence confidence is uh, a causality of, of, of the pandemic. Other things I think are interesting trends to note. And um, hopefully we don't have too long of a data collection period here with the pandemic. But right. uh, maybe we can synthesize things with, uh, you know, a little bit more time. We hope it's just a blip for sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, we are going to take a break. And uh, when we come back, we'll have Christine and Becky with us uh, to talk a little bit about students that did this process really well and what they did to to take control of the process, to put themselves in a strong position to be successful with managing tasks and and their parents and timelines and all of those other things. So stick around if you want to hear about what you might do uh, in the coming year in order to be successful with the process. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. College admissions can be stressful. But Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to the show. Uh, In our first segment, we had Christine Sawicki and Becky Leikling here to talk a little bit about what we saw from students over the course of the past year as they engage with this application process in what is now year two of pandemic college admissions. Uh, We're hoping it's the final year of pandemic college admissions, but we don't have a crystal ball. If we did, we would make even more money, I suppose, in our line of work. Um, What we want to talk about now is what did students do who did it really well, who were able to keep balance throughout this process, who are able to navigate deadlines, who um, you know, have good relationships still with their parents at the end of this whole process and feel good about, about everything? Um, what are some common characteristics among students who are really on top of things? this year. Uh, Becky, what do you think? Did you notice anything that was a trend around your students that were really on top of it or who kind of managed this in a way that felt less stressful? Um, Yeah. So I was thinking still more about what Christine had said about independence as a character trait. And I was actually thinking about um, 
students who saw their own power. And I'm thinking about all those cute YouTube videos of like little kids and their daily affirmations. I am this and I am that. And I feel like students more than ever before had experiences with different types of learning environments. And they had a sense of what worked for them and what was hard for them about academic culture and academic structure in ways that most teenagers don't get because you just go to one school and that's the culture there. But transitioning between remote, hybrid, in-person, all of that gave students more, uh, an increased vocabulary to talk about what they need to thrive in a school setting. And I think that students who saw that as a, a thing they could be in charge of saying this worked, this didn't. And so I'm seeking this. I felt a huge difference in the way their final college lists were good fits, which then in turn is perceived by the colleges that they see that in the student too. Um, And, you know, again, we talked about the deficit mindset. In contrast, students said, I picked up this guy. I was baking. I was looking after my little brother. I, I grew that sort of sense of self when you could claim it made a big difference um, in, in how the application comes together. I would, I would add on to that. I think that you're talking about developing a vocabulary and having these experiences that are not ideal, but you still get some value out of them in terms of your understanding of self. I think students for me that were able to communicate that with me, that were able to articulate what they were looking for, that could tell me when they were not understanding a project or feeling stressed by a part of the search or not understanding why they had to do the the research in a particular kind of way that I was recommending. It was that open communication that created lots of opportunities for us to coach, right? To work with them, to help them be in a position where they could use what they had learned about themselves to apply it to the process. And uh, so, so that open channel of communication is always something that I talk with students about prioritizing early on. And I really saw that that was um, a mark of an effective student's process uh, this past year, especially. Christine, anything that you saw that was a consistent positive among students? Um, I think two things really stand out to me. Um, one is those who took the college research process with fit building off of what we were just talking about and, um, had, had shorter lists that were thoughtfully, um, thoughtfully picked. Um, they were the ones more likely to finish on time at a comfortable pace, making sure that each of those essays really were their best effort going forward. So um, uh, I don't think that was particular to this year, but um, a consistent plus. Um, The other um, thing that stands out to me is uh, one student before early decisions announced uh, wrote to me about, I didn't know that the college process was actually going to be fun. <laughs> and I love that so much that this process, um, you know, which is so often associated and tied with stress and anxiousness could be fun for students. And I think part of that comes from um, empowering them to build off of Becky's comment um, of colleges are interested in that growth experience. They are interested in who you are and helping them feel the power of telling their story um, is fun. <laughs> fun for me as an educator, I think fun for, for students that we, we support. And I love that. Yeah. I think also yeah. like I... That sense of fun, like, I love that. I want every student to feel that. I also think new things are hard. This is a big thing. I think there's no way to not have a little bit of fear. It's unknown. It's you've never done it. But I think that when fear is what's driving the decision making, that's, I saw that consistently not work. To your point, Christine, adding five more schools at the end because there's not an extra essay those never turned into yeses, right? Like the adding 10 more because I read in the newspaper that no one's getting in, that that doesn't translate to success. And to your point, Ian, success is how you feel about your process. And if you can figure out how to trick yourself or make it real that you are in charge of this, that you are informed in making smart choices, you're going to feel so much better about whatever comes than if every part of it is driven by fear. Yeah, I, I have I have three boys who I work with this year, and I think maybe their moms might listen to the show. I'm not totally sure, so I'm not going to say their hi, names. Moms. But hi, moms, how you doing? Uh, these three boys um, 
all, I think, had really great processes. They were all done by about mid-November with the work that they needed to do. Every single one of them removed colleges from their preliminary list because either they decided, you know what, that's a stretch. I'm not more excited about that than a school that I'm pretty confident I'm going to get into. So I'm not even going to apply. Or I tried to sit down and write this essay and nothing came. I couldn't, I couldn't decide what I would write in response to this question. So I'm not going to apply. And I said, that's great. And so those, those boys removed colleges from their list. They went from having 11 or 12 schools down to having seven, eight or nine schools. All of them have been admitted to at least one school by now. They all felt really good about the process along the way. Their moms were really pleased with the outcome so far of the process. Um, and I, you know, I even got from those moms thank yous before the decision started to come in again, which is a key indicator to me that we've managed this, this really well. Um, I will also say that with respect to those parent relationships, and I don't know if you two noticed this, but for me, parents were somewhat less present in the process this year than I think they have been historically. And I think that's part of everybody being overwhelmed by all the things. I think about getting emails from schools, my kids' schools, and being like, I don't have time for this. Like, I, I got all this other stuff going on. Um, but with these moms, they were out of the way and letting the students drive the process. But when it came time to really push because of deadlines or because of things needing to be done, they kind of stepped in and gave that little push to their sons. Um, And I think that it worked really well. Uh, And these kids live in three different states on both coasts, right? So it's not um, a regional thing, uh, but just something that, that I observed across that small group of boys. I, that's interesting to think about the parent shifts in the parents. I, I found going back to our conversation about fit, I think a lot of parents had an insider's view on how their student moves through the school day yeah. for kids that were work were learning from home when the parents were working from home. And so I I think the conversations that families were having about what matters in a finding a good fit college were a little bit different. Folks were collectively more focused on what students need to feel healthy and well, what students need to feel smart, what support systems or what prompting from a teacher. It just, it felt more present for everyone, which was interesting to me. And I agree with you that a lot more parents were were letting their student do their thing for a, a host of reasons. But I do think that family conversations were different with my students this year. Interesting. And I, I'd echo, and maybe we have found one of those trends we can say more definitively <laughs> was present this year, um, that parents did uh, support that independence that their students were, were bringing. And um, it's so easy and natural for me to see a tie to what the last two years have been connected to that. Yeah. What about in the coming year for, for us, right? So we're all right now, we're working with juniors. And I, I think I talked to you two about retail work, our, our work with students more than any other educators here. We have lots of conversations. We do observe trends that we see with classes. And, and it's kind of this funky thing where it's like the class of 2022 has these characteristics. I can just kind of see it coming through in, in my students and your students. But as you think about the class of 2023, what are you going to do differently? What is something that you are going to encourage students to do in this coming year because you've seen it work for students or because you've seen that it hasn't worked for students in the past? What is now a new arrow in your quiver that you can <laughs> apply? Christine is raising her hand right now. She's like, please call on me. I have an answer to this. So go ahead. Yeah, take it away. I have a really specific answer. I have uh, coined um, my New Year's resolution um, in supporting students in the upcoming year. Um, And it is related to last minute work. And um, I um, typically when I'm talking with a family advising the timeline process for how we're going to maneuver through the actual application work, um, I say you want to have typically your personal essay ideally done by the time senior year starts, which tends to be a later August. But with school supplemental essays being um, greenlit for the Common App August 1st when it launches, I am going to set um, uh, an earlier goal of August 1 to give that maximum time and ideally get not just the personal essay, hopefully... um, put together, um, ideally, um, but starting work on some of those supplemental essays. Um, This year, a lot of students had that 
oh, I was so busy this week. This thing came up and um, early is going to be my, my goal. Okay. I think to that point, because so many applications open on August 1st, if you can confirm your list by August 1st, it's going to be so much easier to then see yeah. what do I have to do? But I would say that the latest you should finalize your list is October 1st. Because after that, you need to be finishing things, your deadlines are approaching. And if you're still trying to figure it out, that's where folks are adding schools at the end. And it's, it's, it's not always ideal, I think. You can remove schools after October 1st. You can. Please don't, schools, please, please don't, don't add any new ones. I think one thing, and Christine and I are both planners in different ways. I think in addition to those deadlines, part of my sense of having a student-driven process means supporting families to flex on the timelines and expectations that we have. And I know it's my job in the process as the person who's been through it so many times to provide structure and clarity about deadlines. But I think checking in with families regularly about, hey, given where life is right now, do you need a taskmaster? Or do we all need some grace? And let's check in again in two weeks after we've had a reset. And I think best laid plans are best when they can (laughs) shift a little bit and that's okay. And it's great to have a counselor like us who can be a taskmaster, but even within the home, if you have multiple people who can help support you, maybe you have an aunt or an uncle who can help with the process because you know if mom is going to be your taskmaster, it's going to be destructive to your relationship. Find someone who can help to support you through that process. But I think coming up with the best plan for yourself is really, really key, really critical. And you've got to be honest with yourself about what you're going to need. Um, my, my response, I think, kind of relates to, to what you're both saying about the list and, and starting earlier. Um, I am really going to try and discourage students from copying and pasting content from uh, supplemental essays into new supplemental essays. And we talk sometimes on the show about working smart rather than working hard. And I think that when I am reusing essay content that doesn't necessarily fit with the prompt for a new school, I'm not coming at it with an approach that acknowledges that school as a unique kind of program. And I'm not necessarily thinking about my fit within the program. Now, there are times when you can definitely talk about the same kind of themes. But I think if you're in the moment where you're really relying on content that you're reusing over and over and over again for the same schools, you're getting away from really thoughtful work that's going to make your application better. Maybe that's something that I haven't totally baked yet, um, but it's something that I've been thinking about recently uh, with respect to executing best essays for schools. Becky, are you going to disagree with me? You are. What would a show be without a... Um, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I think that students read a prompt quickly and might assume, oh, I can reuse this. And that's false. I think it is so important to, before you do anything, read that prompt and try to think about what are they, why is, where is this question coming from? And make sure that you are honoring the intent of your question. But I do think that so many questions overlap in ways that I'm very comfortable with 90% of your content being copy pasted, as long as you are intentionally making sure it acknowledges the response. And so, you know, some students get into trouble with the variations on why do you want to go to this college or why this major or why this major at this college where they, they miss the subtlety. And that's a, that's a mistake. But if the colleges are asking the same question with slightly different word counts, I think it is smarter to repurpose than to rewrite. That's a more nuanced way of saying what I'm, what I plan to do. <laughs> That's usually where we get to is we're on the same page. You just have a better way of expressing Here's the it. nuance of the question. Here's the nuance <laughs> of that question. Well, sure. you know, and I'm coming into, I think this is my 10th year doing this. And I find when I read an essay prompt or an essay, I look at the prompt and I actually read it. And then I highlight, highlight the specific it. question that's being responded to with all of that content. Even though I've read this Michigan essay prompt 900 times, I'm still highlighting what that specific question is because I want to read the response with that question in mind. And the values behind it. And the author better be doing that too, man. Because if I'm putting in the time to read the essay with that prompt in mind, you better be writing it with that prompt in mind. (laughs) Um, Any other thoughts, any other reflections coming out of 2021? I think we're all really glad that we're into the next year, into 2022 and looking ahead. Uh, Are there other things that you'd like to add? Test optional is real. 
It actually is optional. This is another place where kids have power. You are in charge of the way you present your data to schools. I think that's amazing. Awesome. That's great. Christine, anything you wanted to add? No, I, I'm, I'm getting excited by Becky empowering students. <laughs> She's empowering me in the process too. And um, that's what I would love for every listener to take away is that this is your process and um, lean into the power that that uh, allows. Awesome. Well, I, thank you both for agreeing to come on when I proposed this to you a week ago and said, hey, why don't we do this? Um, so you're both always game for it. I really appreciate it. It's fun to have two faces to look at on the show. Uh, and folks, thanks a lot for joining us. When we come back, we are going to talk about income-based loan repayment programs. Uh, so you will want to stick around uh, to hear more about that. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. College admissions can be stressful, but Bright Horizons College Coach is here to help. Our college experts who worked in admissions and financial aid at some of the nation's most selective institutions offer ethical, customized assistance based on each student's individual strengths and interests. Students receive one-on-one guidance throughout the process, and our 100% success rate means all of our students have been accepted to college. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. When it's time to go through the college admissions process, look to Bright Horizons College Coach for ethical guidance and customized support. Our educators will get to know your students' ambitions and talents, help highlight hard-won achievements, and create a plan for getting into a top-choice school. That plan includes helping your student choose classes and extracurriculars, create a college list, brainstorm and edit essays, and navigate college financing options. Visit GetIntoCollege.com to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, welcome back, everyone, to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Uh, we are joined for the final segment today by Michelle Clifton, my colleague in uh, college finance all the way on the other side of the country. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to have you here. And we are going to be talking a little bit about income-driven repayment plans. Now, um, I, I think I know what this is, but I'm not always sure. Yep. So let's just start with the simple question, which is, what is an income-driven repayment plan? Yeah, awesome. I'd love to break it down a little bit. They are a little bit confusing. Okay. So, income-driven repayment plans are a way to reduce monthly payments for borrowers. This is just for federal student loans. Okay. So, ultimately, it's a way to make payments more affordable. So, instead of having the monthly payment calculated based on the specific interest rate in a time frame, like it could be 10 years or 25 years, it's instead based on a percentage of someone's discretionary income. And so, to make this, um, and I can explain the whole discretionary income thing. If yeah, you I was going to say, what if you just to decide what discretionary is? <laughs> yeah. So, I always have to uh, like have a cheat sheet for this. So, it's, it's the difference between someone's adjuster gross income and either 150 or 100%, depending on the plan, of the poverty guideline for the family size and state of residence for someone. Okay. So not, not super easy to understand. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. But it is, it can be different if I say live in California versus Kansas. Yes. Because the cost of living in those two places is different. Yeah. Um, so it'd be, it'll be different for someone depending on where they live and if they have a large family versus a single person. So that comes into play. So gotcha. there's, there's four different plans to make it even more confusing. So there's uh, four, <laughs> <Great>. direct lo- <laughs> four direct loan borrowers anyway. So there's... Um, Income-based repayment, income contingent repayment, pay as you earn, revised pay as you earn, and they're okay. they're all they all work similarly. They they're based on a certain percentage of discretionary income. It could be it could be different. Some are ten percent, some are fifteen, some are twenty, okay. and then they all um, or so, I should say, some of them are based on what 
the time frame that you borrowed. So that can come into play. So not everyone is eligible for all four of those plans. So um, the one I see most often used, though, is revised pay as you earn, because that one's the most open. So it's open to any direct loan borrower, um, and it calculates at 10% of the discre- uh, discretionary income. So you most often, um, the lowest um, calculated payment. So when does someone decide that they're going to be involved in something like this? Does it happen when they are in their undergraduate years? Does it happen after they graduate? Does it happen even further on down the road because they adjust to an income-driven repayment plan? Like what's the what's the timing of actually looking into this and making this choice? Yeah, so it could be you know, it could be someone that's just come going into repayment and they're you know, overwhelmed by their monthly payment under the standard plan, which is the mm-hmm. 10-year plan, they could jump into it right away. It could be someone that's having trouble years down the road and they're, you know, wanting to pay something, but wanting to reduce that. Mm-hmm. Or it could be someone who's ultimately trying to get forgiveness through the public service loan forgiveness program. You have to be using one of the income-driven plans to get that forgiveness. So it could mm. be varying different um, ways that you get to that one of those plans. I gotcha. Okay. And does this, uh, this sounds like something that a friend of mine has been doing. Uh, she is now, a, she's a doctor now in Wisconsin. Um, and I think she's been doing this over a long period of time for her medical school loans. Is it right that this is something that would apply to loans for graduate studies in addition to undergraduate studies? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. So it doesn't okay. matter if it was grad, undergrad, now, as let's long talk as it's a federal direct loan. It sounds like a really appealing option. Um, what is the eligibility guideline for this? How do I figure out whether it's something that I can take advantage of if it's the right sort of situation for me? Yeah, the tricky thing is that not everyone can end up using these. It all depends on your federal loan debt relative to your income. Mm-hmm. So I do talk to to folks in, in, in the medical profession all the time that they may work, um, they may um, want to use one of these plans, but they might have not enough debt compared to their income. So gotcha. for example, kind of my, my um, rule of thumb is if your federal loan debt is around the same or higher than your salary, then you definitely could, you know, that definitely would benefit you. So basically the gotcha. income driven plans have to calculate less than the standard, which is the 10 year repayment term. Gotcha. And if your income is a little bit higher than your debt, you may still be able to use one of these plans. But if it's, you know, substantially, if your income is substantially more than your debt, you, you might not actually end up being eligible to use one of the plans. And is that because the income-driven replacement plan is always going to amount to a lower monthly payment than you would pay under a standard plan? And so it's not something that they want to offer up for someone who's making a lot of money and could meet those monthly payments? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it could, I think revised pays you on allows you to calculate higher, um, but there's, you know, unless you're wanting to pay more, um, you know, that's not really the spirit of those plans. So it's typically you're wanting to get that lower. Can you just, uh, let's talk through a little bit more about that loan forgiveness component. Um, Just as a primer for everyone who's listening, what is that loan forgiveness look like? And then how does that fit in with the income-driven repayment plan? Yeah. So there's actually two different ways you can get forgiveness through these plans. So one being public service loan forgiveness that I mentioned before. And so with public service loan forgiveness, that's for direct loan borrowers who either work for a tax exempt, not-for-profit organization mm-hmm. or a government organization at any level. And if if you have meet those two criteria and you're um, eligible for one of the income-driven plans, you can essentially get those loans forgiven after 120 payments. If there's any balance remaining at that point then any uh, amount would be forgiven. So 120 um, payments, 12 months in a year, that's 10 years, 10 years. of monthly payments. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be consecutive, but um, okay. oftentimes it is. Cool. So then that's one way um, to get forgiveness through these plans. The other is there's just straight income-driven forgiveness. So the reason that they have this, so basically it's either 20 years or 25 years, depending on the plan. So sometimes that can um, make the decision on which plan you use as well. Um, ultimately there, it's because, so say, you know, say your payments are very low through using one of these plans and you're not, you know, 
maybe you're not even covering the interest that's accruing every month, or maybe you are covering that interest, but only a tiny bit of the principal. I see that a lot. Your mm-hmm. loan's either going to be growing or it's going to be re- being reduced at a very, very slow rate. So you could, you know, if there weren't forgiveness opportunities, you'd be in repayment forever, essentially. Right. Right. So they have created these uh, programs where it's 20 or 25 years. Um, historically, that was a taxable event for this one, not through PSLF, but through this um, forgiveness, which um, could be substantial for some folks. But fortunately, um, it has been made not taxable through 2025, and but that's currently set to expire on January 1st of 2026. So if that doesn't get extended or made permanent going in the future, that that could be. So we're counting on an act of Congress to extend. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So don't don't hold your breath, yeah. Uh, everyone. Yeah. Okay. So so my question is just hearing everything that you're saying here. If I qualify for an income driven repayment plan, what are the drawbacks to signing up for it? Um, it sounds like maybe I can't pay down the loan as fast as I might be able to otherwise, but I can always pay toward the principal if I have extra funds on hand, can't I? Yeah. I mean, sometimes, so if, if, if it's someone who's not going to be eligible for public service loan forgiveness, if you, you know, if you work for a for-profit employer, um, it can be overwhelming if you are seeing your loan growing or if it's being reduced at a very, very small rate mm-hmm. um, or time frame. You you could if you wanted to use one of these plans just as kind of a safety net to keep those payments lower, so you, you know you can cover them. Exactly, just like you said, you can pay extra at any point in time as long as you've paid the interest that accrued during that month. You can always pay towards the principal um, mm-hmm. through an extra payment to to you know kind of tackle that quicker. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the I would say the big drawback is is the time frame and and you know the the paying off the loan in, in a much longer period of time. Gotcha. And so it's just like, maybe I can just, you know, kind of grin and bear it and, and pay the full uh, monthly payment and, and be done with this. But if it really is becoming a situation where that isn't working for me based on my income level, based on the cost of living where I live, based on the size of my family, then one of these uh, income-driven repayment plans could be a great alternative. Yeah. Like sometimes I'll talk to someone who's a recent grad and they're overwhelmed going into repayment for the first time. They may use this for a year or two and then ultimately, you know, hopefully go into that standard plan for the rest of the time frame to pay it off quicker. Gotcha. I, I like the sound of the flexibility here. It really, it feels like yeah. there's, there is some uh, wiggle room uh, in figuring Definitely. out what's best for you. Um, what about getting signed up? Uh, do you have to apply for this? What kind of information needs to be provided and to whom in order to qualify for one of these income-driven repayment plans? Yeah, that's a good question. So normally when it comes to changing your repayment plan, which is a very flexible process, you usually would start right with your servicer. So on your servicer's website, you would go through an an option to change your payment plan and and walk through that. But with income-driven, it's actually, if you know that that's what you're looking for, it's actually easier instead of starting out on your servicer's website to actually go right to studentaid.gov. And on studentaid.gov, you'll want to log in with the, FAF, the FSA ID, which is the username and password that you used to sign the FAFSA years prior. And on there, um, if you're logged in, you can, um, or once you're logged in, you would go to manage loans and then either certify or recertify your income-driven repayment plan. So the certify is if you're doing it for the first time, recertify is if you're doing it um, after, uh, do, you know, if, you're, if you're doing this for an, uh, uh, in the future, because you do have to go through this process every year if you're continuing to use the plan. You have to recertify it every year. You So every year you recertify what your income level is yes. and your, your cost of living based on the state you are. All that information needs to be run through that system again? Exactly. So say you're using this for a period of 10 years or even 20 years, your payments are going to change every year based on your income and family size and state and all of that. Gotcha. Um, okay. But yeah, so as, as far as applying, so you, you walk through that, it's going to ask you for your family size, your marital status. And it's actually going to have you use the IRS data retrieval tool, which mm-hmm. if someone who's done the FAFSA in the past couple of years, that's what you use to pull over your tax data. Just same thing there. You're pulling over your most recent tax data. So they'll confirm your income. And then from there, um, it's going to, you'll submit it and nothing will happen right away. The, what they're going to do is they're going to send that information over to your servicer. And then in a couple of days, you'll get information from your servicer on which, or sorry, what payment amounts you have available through the different plans, and then you can choose which plan to use um, from there. So I love the the idea of the data retrieval tool. I just imagine like 
you know, the claw that they have at like the arcade or whatever. I just imagine that as the data retrieval tool that it's like finding your tax info and then going down and picking it out. Uh, maybe I'm that's, that's that forever now. That might be just me, but like every time I hear data retrieval tool, it's like, yeah, it's probably like the claw. Um, claw. Hopefully it, it's much better at picking things up uh, and bringing right? it to where it needs to go uh, than the claw is. I have a sister uh, that's really good at it. <laughs> there, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, uh, I've never gotten anything from one of those. Yeah, I don't um, think I have. <laughs> so it might not be the right uh, visual, but I understand that some people can be quite skilled. Um, is there anything else that we would recommend people be aware of as they're looking into these plans? I mean, they sound really appealing uh, for certain levels of earners, um, you know, depending on your circumstances, certainly sound really great if you're looking into the loan forgiveness for public service. Um, anything else that, pe- that people should be aware of? Should I not take a better paying job because I want to stay in an income driven plan? Or does that seem like a, that's, yeah. that's kind of silly, right? No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> As one of my colleagues say, like, if you can pay off your loans, pay them. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. One thing I would say is that, you know, as we get into, you know, the end of the, um, the federal loan repayment pause, which was recently extended once again until May 1st. Uh, but as we, you know, eventually go into repayment on federal loans again. Mm-hmm. It is important to note that you know if you're you if this is the first time you're going to repayment or the first time you want to use one of these plans, you know you do want to go through the application process probably a month or two prior to your first payment being due to get that all squared away. Mm-hmm. And then for folks that maybe were using income driven repayment before the loan pause, you know prior to March of 2020, you actually don't need to do it right away if you don't want to. So they've actually pushed out the um, the recertification date for everyone where the earliest is going to be August of 2022. So if you like the payments that you had you know, forever ago, um, you can continue with that if you want to. Um, or you know, if, if your income has gone up substantially since then, you might not want to recertify until you have to. Yeah, yeah. And you can find your recertification date on the the studentaid.gov website. Uh, but for you know, if, if your income has reduced since then, you might want to opt to recertify early, even though you don't have to. Gotcha. These are the little kind of tips and tricks that people come to the radio show to hear a little bit more about because it's very very complicated. So, thank you so much, Michelle, for for being here to walk us through the IDRs, the income driven repayment plans. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, folks, it was a great uh, show. I I hope that you all enjoyed it as much as I did. We've got another great one coming up next week. We're going to have Megan Stibendek from Arbor Bridge, one of our test prep partners, on to talk about myths around the SAT and ACT. It's getting to be test time, so you'll want to come and join us for that. Uh, We'll also be talking a little bit about how to ask for merit scholarship dollars and increasing the amount of your aid offer because it is getting to be negotiation season uh, for seniors. So, Join us next week. We'll have a great show for you. Uh, Until then, Happy New Year uh, and enjoy the start of 2022. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and the team of experts at Bright Horizons College Coach. Join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.